I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to the 41st part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that the real question of Christianity is not whether or not you tell God you are going to follow Him, but it is whether or not you actually follow Him. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Today is April 5th, 2009, the day before Michigan State wins the Final Four, I mean, wins the NCAA Championship in Detroit. And our lesson for today is the 41st part of our sermonic re review of the last year of the life of Christ, uh, which just happens to coincide with the fact that it is Palm Sunday, and we just happen to reach the Palm Sunday story uh, at the time of Palm Sunday, so it works out good for us. Our text this morning is in the 21st chapter of Matthew, verse 28 through 32, which reads as follows. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. He answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two of them did the will of his father? They said to Jesus, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say, and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this lesson this morning. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now this is the Sunday on the Christian calendar on which we commemorate the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ in, into Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week of his human life on earth. As Jesus entered Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover on the Sunday before his crucifixion, the crowd that accompanied Jesus to Jerusalem hailed Jesus as a king because of the many miracles that he performed, including the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. The people treated Jesus as the reincarnation of King David as they reenacted the scene that occurred when a conquering king returned home decorating the path upon which the King Jesus entered Jerusalem with palm branches, which is why we have palm branches strewn around the church today. 
And while the Jewish people were hailing Jesus for his demonstrations of God's power, the Jewish religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus because they were jealous of his demonstrations of power. This hero's reception for Jesus obviously did not sit well with them. So let us look at this episode, which is recorded in the harmony of the Gospels that we have been using, Jesus Christ, the greatest life, by combining passages of Scripture from Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12, which says this. When Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem the next day and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a donkey tied up. Tied with her will be a colt which no one has ever ridden. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything or asks, what are you doing? Say to him, the Lord needs them and he'll immediately send them here. Those who were sent left and did what Jesus told them. They found a young donkey tied outside the door in the street, just as he had described it, and they untied it. The owners were standing there and said, what are you doing? Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs them, they said, repeating what Jesus had told them to say. Then the owners let them go. So they brought the donkey and the colt to Jesus, threw their clothing on them, and Jesus sat on the colt. And as Jesus rode toward Jerusalem, they began to spread their articles of clothing on the road. When Jesus came to the plate where the road goes down into the Mount of Olives, a large crowd of disciples began to shout for joy and to praise God loudly for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who is coming in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, a huge crowd had come to the feast of the Passover, and when they heard that Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they cut down palm branches, went out to meet him, and spread the branches on the road. The crowds who followed Jesus, as well as those who went ahead of him, kept shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who is coming in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And all this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, tell the daughter of Zion, don't be afraid. Look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the disciples didn't understand these things at first, but after Jesus was glorified, they remembered these predictions about him and that they had done these things to him. The people who were with Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead and called him from the tomb were telling others all about it. That is why the people went out to meet Jesus. They heard that he had performed this great miracle. But some Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, restrain your disciples. But Jesus answered them, I'm telling you, if they were to keep quiet, the very stones would cry out. Now, although it was a day of great accolades and appreciation for Jesus, it was also a day of great sadness. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he realized that he was coming to the end of both his earthly journey and of the Jewish dispensation. The episode continues 
When Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it. If only you, Jerusalem, yes, you, had known on this special day the things that would bring you peace. But now they are hidden from you. The days are coming when your enemies will build a siege ramp around you and encircle you and hem you in on all sides. They will level you to the ground with your children inside you and will not leave one stone upon another. This will happen because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. The whole city was aroused when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Who is this, they asked. The crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Then the Pharisees said to each other, see, we are accomplishing nothing. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus entered the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already quite late. Now Jesus, who unmistakably and publicly exercised the power of God, entered Jerusalem to the accolade of everyone that objectively evaluated his record. And with the city so overwhelmingly positive toward Jesus, how could the religious leaders justify being so negative? And as we review the narrative for the events of the next day, the reason for the negativity of the Jewish leaders surfaces quickly. Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19 record, Then Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple of God, and began to drive out everyone who was selling and buying things there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Jesus began to teach them, doesn't scripture say, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard what had happened and continued to seek a way to kill Jesus. They were afraid of him because all the people marveled at his teaching. The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them all. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus was doing and heard the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became furious. They said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the mouths of babes and infants you have ordained praise? Then he left them, and when evening came, Jesus left the city and spent the night in Bethany. Now Jesus used a defibrillator to restore Lazarus' heartbeat performed LASIK surgery on the blind Jericho beggar and Bartimaeus, and then came to the temple in Jerusalem, performing LASIK surgery on the blind and knee replacements on the lame, and he healed them all. No, he didn't. Jesus didn't perform any surgery. He didn't use any medical implements. He didn't prescribe any drugs, and he didn't tell anyone that office hours were over and that they should come back tomorrow. Jesus spoke to and touched blind and lame people, and they were healed. Now, maybe some of them were faking, were actually able to see and just pretended to be healed in a conspiracy to build up Jesus' reputation, 
But the scripture does not say that Jesus chose certain people to heal and rejected others. The scripture says that Jesus healed all of the blind and the lame that showed up. Jesus' healing ministry was comprehensive so as to make it extremely unlikely that anyone could accuse him of faking. Lazarus, the blind Jericho beggar, blind Bartimaeus, and the blind and the lame in the temple were all raised from the dead or healed in public in plain view of everyone. Jesus didn't take them into the magic tent or sequestered them in any way. Jesus simply spoke a word in public and their physical conditions changed. But the scripture tells us in Matthew 21 and 15, but when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus was doing and heard the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became furious. Furious. What a curious reaction to the miracles of Jesus. Why would the healing of the blind and lame and praise for the person performing the healing make the chief priests and teachers of the law furious. Isn't that an inappropriate reaction to a miraculous event? Now the beginning of the explanation for the inappropriate reaction of the chief priests and teachers of the law is in the combination of Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 20, which says this. So Jesus and his disciples turned, returned to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, teaching the people and announcing the good news, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders of the people approached Jesus and said, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you such authority? Now the issue for the chief priests and teachers of the law is one of authority. The ceremonial leaders of the Jewish religion as appointed by Moses, Aaron, and the temple hierarchy that developed over centuries of Judaism were the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders of the people. They considered themselves in charge of religion among the Jews and felt about Jesus the same way that any pastor would feel if he prepared his lesson for Sunday only to come to the pulpit to find out that his people had voted that someone else would give the lesson. Wait a minute, he might say, I'm the pastor. Who are you to tell anyone else that they can stand in my pulpit and preach unless I give them permission? I'm the pastor, this is my church, and I'm the only one who can approve preachers here. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly the way I feel. If the most scholarly person in the world were to come to church this morning, he would have to listen to me because I spent time preparing this message. But wait a minute. Let me think about that. You know, if I really have your best interest at heart, I should let this scholarly preacher preach because it would certainly benefit you and maybe even I can learn something that I need to know. But although the Jewish religious leaders were afraid of Jesus, Jesus did not come to Jerusalem with the idea of taking over the responsibilities of the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders of the people. There were many rabbis in the synagogues throughout Israel, and all of them were in Jerusalem for the Passover. As a matter of fact, 
The Passover was much like the National Baptist Convention, in which the president preaches the keynote sermon, the dean of the Congress preaches at the dean's convocation, but there are many preachers from all around the country preaching in various places at various times. Many churches in the city in which the convention is being held run revivals during the week of the convention because great preachers that are not on the agenda to speak in the convention are in town and people want to hear them. During the week of the convention, you can hear preaching almost whenever you want to hear it, somewhere in the convention city, and the Passover of the Jews was a similar situa situation. So once again, why did Jesus' preaching cause so much fury? Mark 1.22 explains, And they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was a different type of teacher than your average intellectual educator. Jesus taught with the authority of God. For instance, Jesus taught in Mark 11, 22 through 26. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, Believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now Jesus was not teaching the ceremonial law of Moses as were the scribes, but Jesus was teaching his disciples to wield the power of God. As Mark 1.22 says, Jesus taught as one having authority. What does that mean? As Matthew 21.14 records, the blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them all. And when Jesus did so, then they were, then Luke 4, 36 records, then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves saying, what a word is this? For with authority and power, Jesus commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So when they challenged Jesus in Matthew 21, the chief priests, teachers of the law and elders of the people asked the right question. Where did Jesus get this authority? Well, Jesus came to town to teach, and he decided to teach them. But sometimes the best way to teach is not by lecturing, but by asking and answering questions. And Jesus decided to do so in Matthew 21, 24, and 25, which says, Let me ask you a question first, Jesus said. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The baptism of John, did it come from heaven? Or from men? Answer me. Now this question is relevant because John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Listen to John's sermon as recorded in Luke chapter 3, 7 through 14. The Bible says, Then John the Baptist said to the multitude that had come out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. 
therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children from Abra children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed to you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. So John preached repentance. He told the Jews that relying on their heritage of being the seed of Abraham was an error as the criterion for avoiding the wrath of God was not just being part of the tree of the lineage of Abraham, but actually bearing fruit as did Abraham. John promoted sharing with neighbors and not being greedy for money as a sign of godliness, as did Jesus. And so he was not the favor of the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders of the people, but John's message was one with which it was difficult for a godly teacher to find fault. The Jewish religious leaders disliked John's preaching because he spotlighted their sin, but could not challenge John's message. And for the Jewish leaders, the problem with John the Baptist and Jesus Christ was their message. The Jewish leaders taught that to follow the ceremony, ceremonial minutia of the Mosaic law was the greatest good, especially the part about paying tithe to support the descendants of Levi, which would benefit them. Jesus and John preached that displaying, displaying practical love for your neighbor by helping him and not being greedy would lead to the power of God being displayed in the land, which Jesus actually displayed. Jesus and John challenged the Jewish leaders to actually do something to help the people rather than just to collect their tithes and lead their ceremonies. And it is instructive that the Jewish leaders questioned the origin of Jesus' authority because the Jewish leaders were all about authority. Their authority was a function of their ancestry, of their lineage, and it offended them to hear Jesus and John teach and wield the power of God with actual moral authority because moral authority spots lights the deficiencies in simply having ceremonial authority. Jesus had moral authority and godly power and the people paid him homage by laying down their coats in the road when he came to town. Nobody cared about the Jewish leaders except on the ceremonially holy days in which they presided in the temple. Now the difference between moral authority and ceremonial authority was clear to the Jewish leaders as they showed in their deliberation about their answer to Jesus' question. Matthew 21, 25, and 26 says, 
the Jewish leaders discussed it with each other and said, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the crowd. The people will stone us because they're convinced that John truly was a prophet. Now that is the problem with the Jewish leaders who had ceremonial authority but lacked moral authority. Without moral authority, the Jewish leaders did not stand on principle, but determined the most expedient, but by determining the most expedient things for themselves, whether their actions were principled or not. The Jewish leaders constantly found themselves in conundrums, trying to choose between that which is morally correct and that which is most expedient for themselves, as in this case. But the characteristic of a person that is filled with the Holy Spirit is that moral principles are an absolute for them. People filled with the Holy Spirit do the moral thing regardless of the cost. They do it the moral thing even if it causes them to lose their lives, which is why 1.8 million people took the moral high road and died for their testimony of the Christ in the first 300 years of the church's existence. People filled with the Holy Spirit can always determine the morally correct thing to do. They know that unsolvable debates between moral and immoral do not exist. They know that the reason people decline to do the moral thing is not because they can't figure the moral thing out. People decline to do the moral thing because they do not want to suffer the consequences of taking the moral high road. So the Jewish leaders gave the answer that they most often gave when faced with a moral dilemma that might actually cost them something to solve. Matthew 21, 27 records, so they replied to Jesus, we don't know. Jesus answered them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. I don't know is a cop-out. Of course you know. You're the religious leader. You just don't want to answer because you know that to do so will make you look bad. Truth is not the issue for you, but the issue is how you look. So Jesus follows up on that thought in our text for today. Matthew 21, 28-32 says, But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not, but afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to Jesus, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. Now, folk come to church and profess to be Christian. The real question is not whether or not you tell God you are going to follow him, but whether or not you actually follow him. Jesus says 
that the sinner that spends his time in the den of iniquity but helps his neighbor is closer to God than the person that spends all his time in church but refuses to help anybody. Being in church will not save you unless you do that which God commands. We have already read that which John said in Luke chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John preached that who your parents are is not the determinative factor. Who parents are doesn't matter. What church you go to doesn't matter. Nor does any other intrinsic property of your life matters. What matters is how you live. What matters is how you display your love for the Lord by loving those whom he loves. That is why people that hang out in bars may end up in heaven while the people that hang out in church may miss it. It's not where you hang out but the kind of person you are as you hang out there. Jesus Christ's preaching converted greedy tax collectors who took things from people by false accusation and the disrespected harlots who were sexually immoral because these rank sinners repented of their sins of greed and sexual immorality. Jesus condemned the religious leaders because they refused to repent of their sins of greed and self-aggrandizement. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, regardless of their ceremonial position. The question is not, when your heavenly father asked you to go into the vineyard, did you tell him that you would? The question is, when your heavenly father asked you to go into the vineyard, did you go? John three sixteen and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's not what Jesus Christ said, it's what he did. He gave himself dying on the old rugged cross to pay the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed and in so doing gave us the free gift of access to heaven. All the preaching in the world would not have saved us if Jesus had not acted on our behalf. So as we contemplate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary during this Holy Week, let us remember why Jesus Christ died. Jesus gave himself on the cross. He died to teach us that talk is not sufficient for Christians. We have to actually give something for the kingdom. We have to start where we are, use what we have, and give what we can. Jesus Christ lived a life of service, and although we may not be able to heal the blind and the lame, we have the responsibility to do what we can. Convince people of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by going to church, but by living a godly life. 
And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this lesson and we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the time that you spent among us teaching us the way that we could get right with God. We thank you for the example that you gave us and for the ability that we have to follow your example. And we ask you, Lord, that as we go down from this place that we would put someone less fortunate than ourselves on, your, on our hearts, that we might be able to help bring someone into the kingdom. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.